Thank you. I wish my wife was here to hear that. It's great to see all of you and worship team. What an amazing moment. It's great to see you, Pastor Garrison. Wow. Um, what an amazing moment. And wow, worship was phenomenal. And Pastor Miata, I saw her earlier on the screen in the green room. And she was, I think, speaking to the worship team. And I told her I was going to stand up this morning. I've always wanted to do this in a meeting like this and just say, you know, the Lord spoke to me and said, you're to preach this morning and I was going to have her come on up here and do what she just did because she is amazing. And so not to scare her off, but uh, I have marveled about this church since Pastor Brett called me, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago and had the privilege of coming and engaging your team. And coming back yesterday, I was in Georgetown with the Georgetown launch team and Pastor June and Sarah. And what amazes me, yes, what amazes me about what is happening here is that Pastor Brett, who is a very close friend, we, there are six guys that twice a year we go away. One of those times we bring our wives with us. The other time it's just us guys. But we have done that for 15 years, and in, in those moments, they're very private. It's when we open up everything in our soul and we engage one another with our lives, our families, our ministries. We decided many years ago we were going to finish together. We were going to finish together. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of money, and we disagree with each other. And we challenge each other, and we talk to each other, and we go deep with each other, and we get candid. When you're old, you get cranky and candid, and you don't even care anymore, so you just, you don't even try to say it right. How many of you understand you don't try to say it right anymore? You lose all those capacities, and you just do it. And so you probably wouldn't want to be in those rooms, but it has produced life in us and, and longevity in us and humility in us because we walk like that, and to come here with one of my closest friends and see what has happened here. And I, no pressure on Pastor AJ, but I did tell him earlier that I realized when I was there with June and Sarah and their team that had I had one-tenth of what is in your young leaders, when I was young, the whole world would be saved. No pressure, AJ. You better not screw that up. <laughs> Just no pressure at all. And Garrison, like you too. And so... <laughs> You have not, you don't have a bench. You have, in my opinion, and I'm not paid to come and flatter you, and I don't do that anyhow, but in my opinion, I have never been in a church with a depth of young leaders and their wives as deep, as wise, as tested, as uh, preach the paint off the wall, both in theological depth and cultural connection as this church ever. And you speak into our movement at the global level through Pastor Brett's voice as on the Apostolic Council, which oversees all of our churches around the world, on the global team that is the action part of what we do around the world, North America. He was that for many years as we navigated some of the toughest waters we've had in North America in many millennials' lifetimes. I, I, I'm so old, we've had a lot of those. All you old people, how many of you know we had a lot of dumpster fires in our life? And I remember the Vietnam 
bomb error and all those things. So we were less kind of concerned because we've navigated those things, but he navigated with, with acumen, with grace, with wisdom uh, through the toughest of times. And so it is a privilege to stand in, I think, the most well-preached pulpit in America. So, and I say that uh, as an expert. There's a few times I'll pull the expert card, especially when I'm praising people. Um, when you know something, then your praise is deep. And, and I know church, and this is rare. And your footprint is not just national, it is global. And you're to be commended. Your volunteers, your whatever you call them, are just remarkable. I want to show you, in the way of introduction, my family. Um, I, my wife and I will celebrate 45 years this December. And so these are my grandkids. Forget all the older people. We don't care about our children anymore. Um, you know, when you're old and you have grandkids, you don't ever even say hi when you walk in the room to your children. You go straight to those babies, right? And you don't care about anybody else. So these are our 13 grandkids. Genetically, they all six continents. We have genetics from all six continents on there. You see uh, every flavor, every skin color, every hair texture, every eye color, every kind of everything. And uh, so that is that's what makes me want to go back home right now. I just want to leave now and go hug those babies. The second picture is my wife and I. She was supposed to be with me, uh, but she could not come. We had an emergency, and she, like for the last 30 years, has had to do. She's always left behind to deal with the mess. Thank God for an unbelievable woman. But I chose this photograph because when my wife and I got married... She didn't get a very good deal. I think I was on the sales rack. Probably, probably my version at the time had been obsolete, and they were quitting making that model. You know, that's the rack she got me off of. I was in the shallow section. I had actually never gone deep with anyone in my entire life, and I had no idea. I had lots of friends. I'm woo, I'm relater, people. I had crowds. And they were all a quarter of an inch deep and nothing any deeper than that. And we stood together and said, I do. She didn't know that's what she was getting at all. So you can imagine beginning a marriage when you can't have any depth at all in a conversation. When you can't never, and, and how many of you know it, it's terrible when things get bad? I mean, when things are good, you know, I could joke and be my shallow self and everything was okay, but then when things go bad, it's not good. And so the pressure mounted on our marriage. We had a terrible marriage. We fell in love, and I've learned this about falling in love. When you fall in love, you'll crawl out of that ditch relatively quickly. Then you'll realize who you really married about third to seventh year. And you go, oh, how do you change? And they didn't change. You just now know who they really are. And then you'll have to fall in love with someone you don't like. And then your love will have to be actually deep. It will have to be rooted in Christ. And you'll find a love that you never thought was possible. And that takes work. That takes a lot of work. And so 
our marriage was in the typical crisis mode because of some little problem and we just, I would just, my normal thing was to, you know, have a prefrontal emotional lobotomy and you go, well, everything is going to be fine, you know, and that was just me. And I went to a friend of mine who was a psychologist. This was back in the day when you never went to a psychologist. <laughs> that was not cool then. Now everybody has one. But a friend of mine, I said, but I've realized something about me. I'm shallow. I said, and I don't know what's there. I don't know if it was the sins of my fathers or my forefathers or my tenth fathers, but I'm a shallow man. I said, I can't navigate anything with my wife. Can't navigate it. And he goes, well, I want to sit down and teach you how to do that. I have a structure that will drive you deep in your soul. I said, you're kidding me. He said, no, no, I got a structure. And he sat down and taught me this simple structure. And that structure drove me deep into my soul. And it took a decade. It took a decade. But when this photograph of my wife and I was taken, the reason that's special to me is because that is the moment I finally realized I was a different man. I, was, I had depth about me. I had depth about me. Now let me give you the other side of the prayer. I brought the same thing into the prayer closet with God. The same shallowness, the same brokenness, the same inability to wrestle with God through life. And guess what? Jesus gave the disciples a structure. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he gave them a structure. We think that that's somehow some shallow root prayer. No, 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 no. That is designed to drive you to the deepest, darkest recesses of your soul to get a relationship with God to walk through him. And in the Old Testament, it's the same way. It's called the lament psalms. Lament psalms have structure. They have structure about them. And it's substantial. It is not a routine that you just walk through. And I want to take a look at the first lament psalm in the book of Psalms. I'd like for you to take your Bibles and stand and read with me Psalm chapter 3. You'll notice I'm a Bible marker. I buy like 19-pound Bibles so that I can have a workout while I'm reading about Jesus. So I told him, I said, I need, a, I need that because if I get tired with the workout, I'll set my Bible down. But anyhow, I mark my Bible. This psalm is my favorite lament because it, when you read lament psalms, they're structured. Sometimes there's three parts, sometimes there's four parts, and sometimes there's five. This has all five parts. And this has become my closest friend for decades now. I looked at Russ Austin afterwards and I said, Pastor Russ, he was my pastor. I said, I don't know how to pray. He said, then we'll meet. Listen, this is how bad I was. We met for seven years, five days a week from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. And my soul changed. This psalm is powerful. Let's begin reading there in Psalm chapter 3, verse 1, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. 
O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke up again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Jesus, we ask you to teach us through the presence of your Holy Spirit this morning. Teach us how to lament well with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You immediately know this is a troubling song. Anytime a boy is hunting his dad to kill him, how many of you think that's a tough day? That is like a really bad day. David had the worst day. I've never known anyone that has messed up his life as bad as David had. If you want the context of this, it's horrid. You can read it in 2 Samuel from 9 to like 15, those chapters. Give you the whole horrific rated R story of the sin of David. His own sin got him here. How many of you have ever had a bad day because of your own sin? And you knew you were reaping at that moment what you had sown, even though you had repented, even though you had come to Jesus about it, you were paying the price for what you had sown. And this is where David finds himself. And he starts with this lament. And you know the story, I'm gonna be very careful, but David sleeps with Bathsheba, married both of them, has a baby, the baby dies. How many of you know that's tragic? Has the husband of Bathsheba murdered? Murder's a big deal. He neglects his family. The cataclysmic sin in David's life begins to infect and affect his children. He has one of his stepsons who violates his stepsister. And David was absent, checked out. So Absalom, another son, takes it into his own hands. And he goes and murders his brother because somebody should have done something about something. Then Absalom flees because he knows he should be killed for that. So Absalom flees. David summons him back to the city and then ignores him for three years. Ignores him for three years. Absalom gets bitter. How many of you think Absalom has every right to go kill his daddy by now? Because his daddy's a jerk. And so Absalom stands at the city gates, wins the city over, most of the military over, all the political power players over, and David flees because Absalom now is going to take over his king, and that means you kill all the family and you kill the king. And David flees with a small group, a small army, and yet the vast army is left behind, and now they're hunting him. Now he's hiding in caves. 
And he knows the armies are bearing down on him. And Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble. That word trouble isn't outside. It means inside of you, your soul is going to be troubled and you're going to think there's no options. That's what that actually means. There's no options. There's no way out. There's nothing. Nothing there. That's where David found himself. There is no way out. The sin and what I did is so bad, there is no way out. And my son is coming to kill me, and he begins this lament. The first part of lament is called an invocation, invocation. I would write these five things down because research proves you can only remember three things. I'm going to do five. (laughs) When you're my age, you don't even remember three. So you write everything down because that brain cell dies and the memory's gone. And so David cries out to God. And I want to talk about what lament is, first of all, and what it is not. Lament is a Christian move. It is for those who are converted. And the first thing is this, you cry, oh Lord, that's an invocation. The first two words prove it's a, it's a, it's a psalm like this. He goes, oh God, I titled this message, Save Me, Oh My God, lifted from that passage. Why is that? That is the the idea of this is lament means, God, unless you split the sky, you got to be here with me now. When I first started praying these Psalms, I would go, oh Lord, and then I'd wait. And I would deal with my unbelief. And I would deal with things because it drives it deep. Am I really crying out to God, believing that he's in the room with me? And so David cries out, invocation. Next time you're asked to do an invocation, don't just lightly take that. That means you're asking God to be present with you. And so he cries out, oh Lord, my favorite prayer. When my wife and I were doing a retreat, a leadership retreat, um, the team was walking up front. I was just making the introduction. We had all these people paid uh, tens of thousands of dollars for this retreat. It was organized. And I'm just, just saying hello to everybody. We were just getting started. And a group of people walked in. And I saw the look on one of my associates' faces. He walked up and interrupted me and whispered in my ear, your wife's dad just died. And so I'll never forget when... when so we walked out and they took it and we got in the car and we were a six hour drive from there because we were way out in the country. And I remember invoking the name of God for six hours. Oh Lord, save me, oh my God. Because she had lost her brother of 33, three years earlier. Back to back deaths that were tragic early She cried out to God. We were just invoking his presence, saying, split the sky. God, give us words to say when we get there. We didn't know what to pray, but when you're crazy and you're cornered, you begin by grabbing God. When you say, oh, Lord, this is what you're saying. God, I'm grabbing you. I'm not letting go of you. Because you and I are going to walk all the way through this to the end. 
right from the beginning. This is not deconstructing your faith. Jesus is not being put on trial in a Christian invocation. You are not questioning your faith. And Listen to me. There's a cool term you going around now. It's in Christian circles. You know, they stand up and they announce, I'm deconstructing my faith. And everybody goes, ooh, that's really kind of cool. Let me tell you how dangerous that is. In theology, there's two schools of deconstruction, higher criticism and lower criticism. 99% of the time when you're bitter and you're jaded, it's lower criticism, a higher criticism. You are going in and putting Jesus on the dock and you're deconstructing it. Let me tell you something. When I open this word, it deconstructs me. It deconstructs me. God has been put on trial for thousands of years. And he's been found to be faultless. And when you learn how to lament, you cease to put God on trial and you let your life is on trial. He deconstructs you. When it says do not be conformed to this world, it's because he comes in and deconstructs you. And then he reconstructs you. He deforms you and reforms you and then transforms you. You don't do that to him. I know that sounds cool. I know that sounds like you're, you're just like higher than all the other Christians because now you can deconstruct your faith. You've got to be kidding me. A friend of mine was bitter at God, and it had gone on for years. And I was looking at him, and I said, why are you bitter at God? He goes, God can handle it. I said, well, of course he can handle it. Do you know that more people are bitter at God than anyone could ever have bitter at them. And he doesn't care. He could care less that you're bitter at him. He can handle it all. But you can't. But you can't. Lament at the depths of lament is you grab onto Jesus and you say, my Lord. And that's how it begins. It's not God on trial is invocation split the sky. I am not going to let go of you, even if I don't even feel you. We're going through this together. Does that make sense? That's, that's, that's invocation. The second move, this is, this, is, this is where it all comes into play right here. Is, it's where the lament comes in, the complaint. It's where you go in with all your junk with God. This is where you can go tell him. I think you're doing a really bad job today about being God. You are ridiculous. You're always late. How many of you think he's most of the time he's late? How many think his answers are most of the time late? Half of the time, God, when I pray, you don't say anything. You're just like my wife. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. God, I'm telling you, this is where you dump it all is the complaint side. And this takes something to do this. You come in and say, God, I don't feel you. I don't see you. I don't know why these evil people, this happened to me. I don't understand why the complexity of life is like, you dump it. That's the kind of the middle of the Oreo is this complaint. You just put it all there and you let it out. And I had never done that to any. I just couldn't do that. And there were things left unsaid. Do you know when you have lament, you say all the terrible things you need to say. 
Jesus loves bad prayers. Let me tell you what happened in complaint for me. I was always complaining about my wife. This woman you gave me is demon-possessed, God. <laughs> yeah, she is. Jesus, if you will change her, sin will leave the planet. So 45 minutes of my hour prayer was complaining about my wife. And you know, Jesus wanted me to bring it because he wanted to deal with it. Complaining and the complaint part of lament, you bring it. You get honest with him. You're not putting him on the dock for trial. You're telling him all of your doubts, all of your fears, all the things that are in you. And I would complain about that woman. And it happened one day. I stopped doing that. And then I started praying for me that I would change. And now I don't want any of the sins of my wife to ever be different. I told her, I said, your sins are just cute to me. <laughs> don't even want, I hadn't prayed a change or prayer for decades. Complaint. You see, you invoke God and then you do the complaint and this is his complaint. He says, many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no hope in God for him. Imagine that. Imagine that. There's, everybody was saying, listen, that's such bad trouble and he caused it all. God is not even gonna help him. And he said that. I have been many times in places like this, where my friends were going, mm-hmm. You know when you have trouble and you go tell somebody and they, their jaw is just down like this and they're just looking at you? <laughs> wow. Okay. You're toast. And that's your best friend, you know? That's, that's that. Now, immediately... After this moment in this structure, this is brilliant. He's just dumped it. He's feeling the armies, many, many, many. He's seeing them come as his, his spies are coming to him and telling him, they're going to kill us. They've mobilized the entire army. They've got four troops looking for you, and there are many more on the horizon. And then after that is the whole entire army coming. They're just waiting to find us. And they're fearless because they think God isn't even going to help you. They think they're doing the work of God. And they're coming. They're coming. And he says this. Then David, in the middle of the hopeless moment, starts the confidence phase. But God... You're a shield around me. You're a shield around me. Abraham is the first one. You know who thought of the idea of shield, this word? It was God himself. When he was cutting a covenant with Abraham, he said, Abraham, I am your shield. That was the first reference in Scripture. God revealed himself to him, and that's why it's, it, the word shield is used from Old to New Testament. Paul's whole idea of the shield of faith, that construct is simply this. God is a shield, and if God is in you, he is shielding you. Yes. 
Now what happens to us is we think, you're not doing a very good job of shielding. Like the reason I'm hiding is because you're not shielding. Listen, God lets through what God needs to have let through to discipline you and to change you. But he is your shield. And when you think he's your shield, you're confident that if they get to me, they were supposed to get to me. Whatever gets through, if it's Satan, Satan, you know, is an agent of redemption. I know that messed with your theology. I know that, that you're probably going to be thinking of that for, for, for years. All he can shake is what is not built right. All he can do is prove what is true and what is not true. That's his role in redemption. He is the proof text of redemption. So God lets him through just like he did with Job. To test you, to try you, to make it get down inside of your soul so you can see what you have built wrong and what you have built right. Lament drives you to that place. You're a shield around me, God. If anything gets through, it's only through because you said go through. And I trust that, God. You're my glory. David had lost all of his glory. The shame that was on him from everybody knowing his sin. He left the palace and he said, God, you're my glory. I mean, imagine that you get shaken and at least in that shaking, you realize no true glory is him. Nothing I'm building. He said, you're the lifter of my head. I used to want my wife to be the spiritual lifter of my head. But human encouragement is important. But there's nothing like God lifting your head. And a deep man and a deep woman of faith in the worst of crisis cry out to God and say, God, lift my head. He says, you answer my prayers. He, these are things he's confident in. In the middle of all of his complaint, he's got confidence in something. You have to force yourself to say those things about God in the bad times when it's really bad. Practice that. In your marriage, when it's really bad, practice this. Go tell them how confident you are in them and think of all the good things and just tell them that. Just tell them that. But this is where you tell God all of that. Oh God, I need you. Save me. Here's my deepest, darkest thoughts. But I am confident of these things in you. See how this is driving you deep in your soul. But I'm confident. Oh my goodness. I've spent 45 minutes on the list. I woke, I lay down and slept. Oh, I love this. And he answered me from his holy hill. How many of you know we call this Capitol Hill? How many of you know that's a holy hill? How many of you know that's a seat of power? 10 Downing Street. Pennsylvania Avenue. Those are hills. Back in that day, it was Jerusalem. And this is what David was saying. I know they big, they bad, and they ugly. And they're coming from the holy hill of Jerusalem. But there's a hill above that hill that is a far greater power. And that is the hill, God, that you come from. Listen, we're in D.C. There is a hill much higher than the hill here. It is way higher. 
It is way up there. And that's who we're appealing to. That's why Jesus in his, in his structure said, pray this way. Our Father, begin with that invocation. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. How many of you know it's first of all about him? Everything is about him and that hill that he sets on and he's not intimidated by anything. And so that's why he's saying, you answered me from your holy hill. That's where you want an answer from. And I've learned this about those answers. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says grow. The most excruciating one is slow. And then sometimes it's go. But he answers. He always answers. And you need to know he answers. And you need to confess he answers. As I lay down and slept, I woke up again for the Lord sustained me. You're a sustainer. And I'm not afraid. Then it moves into the fourth part is petition. Petition. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. This arise, O Lord, means stand up. From your seat of power and judge. That's what this means. Stand up as the judge. Now it's you, God. You judge. You, you just get yourself up and stand there and you look at the scenario. And now you judge. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies. This is the petition. Strike all my enemies on the cheek. In other words, humiliate them. Humiliate them. Create a humbleness on this arrogant army that's coming after them. Humiliate them. Break their teeth, meaning disempower them. Make them fear and feel weak. And, and David knew this move because he knew that the armies of Israel were not the great power. Is it 10 I'm supposed to finish? Is, did I go way past already? Okay, I just got real nervous. You said finish on the hour, and then I just realized I, okay. We'll go to Exodus next. Uh, then five, I'll finish it here. Five is praise. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Um, David was thinking about immediate salvation and ultimate salvation. Both of those things. And if you're here this morning, and... You're like many people that come into church and you're either feeling drawn to Jesus, struggling to figure out if you're actually a real Christian, if you've really crossed the line of faith. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's in Him and Him alone. There are not many ways to God. There's only one way. Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth and I'm the life. And the gospel is simply this. He created humanity. And humanity sinned against him and violated and committed high treason against God. And we all bear that in our souls. You know, the greatest proof of depravity, I always say, is the two-year-old department. I go down there and see evil. Evil <laughs> reigns in the two-year-old department. It's... And it, the sins of the foremothers are passed down to their children. I tell my wife that constantly. That evil was your evil. That, I can see that in kids. And because of high treason, 
we're separated from God. We think that salvation can come through our three-and-a-half-pound brain worshiping ourselves and our own thoughts. We think that salvation can come through any other way. And God said, no, you committed high treason against me, and I'm going to send my son to redeem you, to pay the price, the wrath that I should pour out on you for your high treason. I'm going to pour out on my son because he's going to come and live a perfect life. And in no fault of his own, he's going to bear the wrath that I should have poured out on you because he's going to be just and he's going to live right because we are not just and we are not right. And the only way you can come to that knowledge, we're so dead in our sin that if right now you're thinking maybe I want to believe, let me tell you, the only reason you can think that is because he's giving you a gift called faith. That comes from him. So don't mess up if you feel like you may want to believe. I'm telling you, that is the very presence of Jesus Christ dropping in you the gift of faith, removing from your eyes what the Bible calls scales so you can even understand what this old dude is saying. That's how dead we are. We can not only reason our way to conversion, we can't even believe. We are helpless and hopeless without Jesus Christ. 